Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson, and this is Richard Hollingham. Hello. This time we witness British astronaut Tim Peake attempting to navigate a Mars rover through a cave and go inside one of the sections of NASA's new giant rocket, the SLS. We'll also be marking the 55th anniversary of Mercury 3, the 15-minute flight of America's first astronaut, and we have our guest, writer and poet Simon Barraclough, who's celebrating just over a century of general relativity. You have to do more than wave, Simon, actually. People can't see you wave. I'm sending out a gravitational wave that will be detected later. Excellent. We'll talk about that theory later and our grasp of it. Um, welcome back to the podcast, Thanks Simon. Thanks very much. Good to you've be back. Been, this, you, you think you've been on three times? It's third time, yeah. Wow. Twice kind of about the sun and now about general relativity, so... Now, you've contributed to this book, I Am Because You Are. That's right. What's it trying to do? It is to mark the 100th anniversary of Einstein's general theory of relativity, um, which was first published in 1915 and then rapidly mended because his ideas were coming thick and fast. And it's the brainchild of um, an ex-astronomer and novelist, Pippa Goldschmidt, um, and a co-editor, Tanya Hirschman. And it was really to celebrate um, the fact that this theory is scientifically interesting, but it's also had a significant impact on popular culture and the way we think of reality. And I think they wanted to cast a a wide net to to gather a lot of artists, writers and scientists who um, do work very productively together. It's something I've been very involved in in the last few years just to see what kind of come out the other side really and see can the artists learn from the scientists and vice versa and can the reading public learn um, a little bit more about um, general relativity and also enjoy these kind of often mind-bending often very personal um, stories. That's the nice thing about it actually because the authors are there are some professional poets Uh writers like yourself but there are professors of astrophysics there are astronomy and this anthology of of short stories and some it's uh it's, it's a great idea. Uh, and we're really talking here about the fundamental nature of space. This is the Space yeah. Boffins podcast. The uh-huh. fundamental nature of the universe. Mm-hmm. Have you got your head around this stuff? It's an ongoing wrestling match. You know, I, I feel there are certain nooks and crannies and folds of it I understand better than others. But that's the great thing about Einstein's theories is that we're still, we're still ironing out some of the kinks and creases and some of the, um, the um, implications and predictions. Well, we'll talk more later. But um, for now, just read us a, an extract from, from your story. This is, I think, the beginning of the story. Yep. It's called Ticked Off. 
Do you suspect you've been the victim of time hacking? Are you worried that memories, relationships, skills, knowledge or past accomplishments have been taken from you without your consent? Are there unexpected gaps in your social media timelines? Have you ever confidently picked up a musical instrument only to discover you couldn't play a note? Such telltale signs could mean that you're entitled to a time refund. Don't lose any more time. Complete and return this simple form now and we'll handle the rest. No win, no fee. If successful, Time Lawyers for You will retain 5% of your lost time to cover administrative costs. Please see full terms and conditions online. Great stuff. Great stuff. Right, we'll, uh, we'll hear more about that later. Hopefully that's got you in the mood for what's to come. British astronaut Tim Peake, now he's been pretty busy lately. When he's not been running a marathon in orbit or doing science experiments, he's been operating a Mars rover in Hertfordshire. That's the rover in Hertfordshire, that is. The experiment is part of an international project to prepare for human and robotic missions to the Moon and Mars. It involved the European and UK space agencies and the Mars Yard at Airbus Defence and Space. A wall had been erected in the red sandy yard with a small opening to simulate a dark cave, small enough though for a rover to get through. Using controls on the space station, Tim had to steer the rover inside, locate a number of objects and then examine them. Luckily, I found myself in the control room shortly before discovering whether it was going to work or not. Some last-minute advice there for astronaut Tim Peake, who's on board the space station and is about to take control of an ExoMars prototype rover called Bridget in a Mars yard in Stevenage. Well, the rover is now doing what looks like almost a... 360-degree turn. The control is happening over 100 miles above our head from a space station travelling at 17,500 miles an hour. I'm David Parker, Director of Human Space Flight and Robotic Exploration at the European Space Agency. Well, it seemed a little touch and go for just a couple of minutes there in the control room, whether it was going to happen or not, and everybody looked pretty relieved when yes. it happened. It's very, I mean, this is nail-biting stuff. This is really doing science and technology at the edge of the possible. We've never tried this before. If you think of all the communication links, there are about half a dozen different link points in, in, in this experiment to get from where we are down here in Stevenage, up to the space station and back again. So Tim is just getting used to the controls. He tried, first of all, operating the camera, moving the RAM so we could see the pictures uh, that he was seeing, that we were seeing, and also looking into the deep, dark cave that hopefully he'll drive into a bit later. And then he's, first of all, tried doing a th- sort of 360-degree wheelie, turning around and seeing, uh, getting used to the controls, and they're checking out the next stage. Now that we know you can do this, where next? Part of what's behind this are some very clever technology to keep the control signals working in the, in the event of, of interference, let's say. Uh, so that's going to help the controllers design the future. 
but it's all about learning, getting more tools in our toolkit to prepare for planetary exploration. I mean, you think about um, rovers going onto the surface of the moon, going into dark craters at the South Pole to look for water ice, or a rover going in uh, in Mars to, to, to look for signs of past life. So this is getting us more techniques that we could think about using and prove, convincing people that it's possible. We had um, Buzz Aldrin on the podcast recently and he was talking about his cycler orbits to Mars and a lot of his ideas involve actually just this, an orbiting spacecraft that would operate remotely mm. Uh, rovers down on a planetary surface, perhaps putting together mm. a habitable space yep. for then future astronauts to go in and live. Do you think this means we're one step closer to that? It's definitely a step along the way. I mean, that's the challenge. Actually, being able to land on the surface of Mars with a big spacecraft with humans, actually, we don't really know how to do that yet. But that shouldn't stop us heading out there and going, perhaps going to orbit around Mars. There's the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos, that could be great stopping off points as well. Which is one of the things he advocates as well. Exactly. Think, yeah. exactly. The idea, it's just about you know, footprints and flags, we just go there and come back again. What we're interested in is a long-term sustainable exploration of the solar system. And I like the fact that it not necessarily just applied to Mars, but also our nearest neighbour, the Moon. Absolutely. I mean, one of the visions of the international community is a stepping stone into deep space, a so-called habitat that might be in orbit around the Moon or perhaps in one of these famous Lagrangian points, one of these stopping-off points into the solar system where uh, humans could live and work for you know, months at a time particularly learn the techniques and our technology for recycling, but also protecting them from radiation environment in, on long voyage to Mars. It's a thousand times further away than the space station, but not as far as going to Mars. Well, I think I'm going to pop into the control room again now, as you have to keep pretty quiet in that Mars yard because there are so many cameras there, so I will pop in and uh, hear the rest of it. Thank That's you. It. Into the control room. My name's Abby Hussey and I'm a spacecraft structures engineer here at Airbus Defence and Space. And are you pleased with the way it's gone so far? Because the rover Bridget is in the cave. I've seen ultraviolet lights go on. I've yep. seen white light come out of it like car headlights. I'm delighted. It's so exciting to think that there's an astronaut driving this rover around and it's just a few metres away uh, from you. And It's just fantastic to think that he's 250 kilometres up in the air and he's floating around in space, but he's looking at the same thing that you're looking at. That's really exciting. You don't feel slightly territorial because you must feel <laughs> as though this is your rover. Well, when he's been driving Bridget, because we drive Bridget around quite a lot ourselves, you do think, does he know that you've just got to press press go twice and you go a bit faster and a few things like that so it's quite fun in a way that he's doing something that we're so used to doing so now that you know that it's worked will you make any modifications at all after we finished we'll have a full debrief with tim so we'll talk to him and understand exactly what he found difficult and what he didn't about this challenge so the things that we're going to learn are did the interface make sense could he easily tell what controls he was going to use and how to use them if the signal dropped out was that clear to him how it happened and for him to pick back up where he left off or or was that not managed in an appropriate way and all of those difficulties so it's learning where the challenges were and making it smoother for the next time okay copy yeah, that location is approximately 15 decimal five and negative three decimal five 
Tim Peake navigating the Mars rover in Stevenage. And you can see pictures of the experiment. They're on the uh, Space Boffins Facebook page. Incidentally, the mission itself that this rover will be for, previously known as ExoMars 2018, is now ExoMars 2020. A lot of branding to be changed on that. I, I think this idea of putting astronauts in orbit around Mars or maybe on Phobos and operating a rover on the on the surface is such a good idea mm. and such a good stepping stone. And Dave Parker said, I thought, very nicely, this, this idea of going there, putting footsteps on the planet, putting up a flag and coming back again. Or what is the point of that? Yeah. Well, and it's nice to hear Buzz Aldrin's ideas vindicated at the highest level as well. You know, he's an extraordinary, innovative ideas and they're rooted in genuine engineering and spaceflight mm. knowledge. Well, it- I, lo- I love it. I-, I think it's very exciting and particularly... The moon excites me, funnily enough, more than Mars. Right. Uh, well, the of getting there in a moon base or something. I find the moons most exciting. I think the moons around mm-hmm. Jupiter or Saturn, which is where we may have to end up living, you know, oh, many, many yes. hundred thousand years from now. I think this is all part of that project. You know, we, if, you know, um, if sentient life needs to get off this planet at some point, we need to find these other little um, posts to get there. And this is all part of that project, I think. But listening to them talking about the... Um, the intuitiveness of the controls. It, you could almost be describing a new mobile phone as well. There's a kind of there's an aspect of press go, go twice, yeah, yeah. but user interface design. It's all you know. Everything we do is is is, is interlinked. I think what I'd like is a firm commitment by the space agencies to do this, to have stepping stones, to maybe go to the moon first, to have a moon base, to have this moon village. Well, the ESA director to... general and yeah, but moon where's village. the money? Where's the money? These are all. It's just talk. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot more than talk will will come along. I suppose it also depends on who becomes the next president of the United States from NASA's point yes. of view. <clears throat> well, this morning I voted for Tim Peake to be the next mayor of London. So I think <laughs> he wasn't actually on this slip, but I, I penciled him in. I think it'll be all right. Trump Towers on the moon. Oh. Ever wondered what the alarms sound like on the International Space Station? Anyone ever wonder what the alarms sound like on the International Space Station? I can't say Con- it was at the top of my list. <laughs> no, but anyway, the European Space Agency has recently posted recordings on their SoundCloud account. Now, if you are driving, or if indeed you are on the International Space Station right now, um, you might want to turn the volume down. So um, this is the caution alarm. Now, that is if a um, component fails or a system's not working properly. And actually, they suppress that at night. So that's just annoying. Or just a, a single monotone, like yes. with, with all pay phones yeah, that if a, it's, you've hung up. If your computer doesn't yeah, work properly yeah. or something, some modules, they always have a backup for these things. So that'll just, that'll just sound yes, a little bit annoying, but they can suppress that one. Now, the next level up, this is warning. Equally annoying, and those are problems you have to fix immediately. So that'll be I'm, a system problem. I'm sorry, we can't connect you on this line. <laughs> you, you can also earn money doing voiceovers. Okay, now this is the really scary one. This is the one you absolutely do not want to hear in space. 
That's the emergency alarm on the ISS. And there are caution warning panels of the light up to tell you what's wrong. So that could be a fire, loss of pressure, something's hit you. Simon and I are just sort of frowning because that's like, you've time to wake up. It sounds a, a, like a, a little, little meek, um, considering oh. there's a shape-shifting xenon I want at loose on the bay. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. If something goes massively wrong, well, I want... Uh, look, presumably, uh, look, we uh, can, presumably warning, they've got... Yes, warning, the, warning. Presumably these people know what they're doing and they've researched... <laughs> this and they've decided that that's the sort of alarm that you can hear but you can still work whereas i've always thought this has always bothered me actually now we're on star trek this has always bothered me this big red alert red alert red alert panic 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 you're not going to be able to calmly do your job and avoid the klingons are you ah no but what it does is it gets your heart rate going so that you're in a little panic panic what do we do what do we do red alert big red signs the corridors lighting up red this is a trained highly trained crew you might do that, but I'm afraid you'll find a member of Starfleet well, I think, I think, just wouldn't. I think the know, annoying beep is the way no. to go. You know, people die in fires all the time because they don't stop doing their work. They will, they will happily update their mm. Excel spreadsheets <laughs> through five or six minutes of a fire alarm. Well, I, um, I, I, I'm I can, not joking. It no, happens well, all the that time. That last warning sign, I can see why. Mm. I would just ignore that and think I'll well, just send this I, email. Let, let us assume yeah. that these are highly trained astronauts and they won't <laughs> ignore that. I mean, going back to Star Trek, I think this proves once again in the words of uh, Dr McCoy space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence Um, and why are you presenting this podcast again? I love space, I just don't want to go there more from our guest, writer and poet Simon Barraclough shortly on the nature of space and time and how America's giant rocket the Space Launch System is shaping up this is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists It's interesting, but it's interesting in the same way taking personality tests are interesting. They kind of tell you something you already know about yourself, but it's kind of reaffirming. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, as the costs of DNA analysis come down, we've seen the rise of home genetic testing. But what do these tests actually reveal? Plus, digging up dog genomes and our gene of the month is totally legless. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you're going to Space Fest in Tucson, Arizona in June, which seems to be something of the, the Comic-Con for, for space. You're going to wear an outfit there. Everyone is there. Can... Team cap. <laughs> Team I don't cap. think that's the done thing to wear an outfit. These are real people, real astronauts, not Star Trek. Anyway, I'll be there recording for Space Boffins and the BBC. If you are going, I would assume that everyone that's going to Space Fest listens to the Space Boffins Let's podcast. Hope so. If not, they will do after you've been there. Uh, yes, I will. I will fling cards everywhere. Listen to Space Boffins. Um, so anyway, if you if you see me, do say hello. Back to Relativity and Simon Barraclough. Uh-huh. Actually, before we talk about that, I want to know where the title came from, I Am Because You Are. I Am Because You Are. Apparently it's, it's an Ubuntu phrase which kind of talks to the interconnectedness of all people and all things. It's a kind of holistic vision of reality which is very much linked with Einstein's startling insights that grew out of the general theory of relativity that space and time, time are not connected. separate things. They're interconnected things that act on one another. And we're all part of that because we're, we're, you know, matter affects um, space time and space time affects matter. And we're all we're all involved in that as free as we may feel sometimes. Now, you've been spending an awful lot of time with uh, space scientists. It's quite interesting as a poet. Is this 
sort of knowledge changing your view of the universe in general and how you view everything? Because it's always thought that poets would have a specific outlook on life. Really? Um, well, I think there are as many different outlooks on life as there are poets, as there are people. Um, I guess there are certain pathways or subjects that poets are expected to follow. Certain things like you're making the familiar unfamiliar and all those kind of things. Um, lyricism. Lyricism. Um, um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of thought and a lot of structure and a lot of, um, met- you know, metaphors. I mean, Einstein used a lot of playful, imaginative metaphors to, to, to get to some of the insights. You know, he, he, he did these um, thought experiments. So he would imagine that he was sat on the end of a, he was sat on a photon flying through space. And what would happen if, if he then shone a torch? You know, would that photon from his torch travel faster than the photon he was on? Those kind of, those kind of very specific um, external metaphors he was very, very good at. And that's what poets use a lot to, to try and understand complex ideas. Um, as far as it's changing my view of the universe, I don't know. It's never been fixed. It's changing all the time. And, you know, sometimes I feel confident. And sometimes I feel very troubled and worried. And But I think um, the great thing about um, Einstein's theory is that it, it gives license to artists and writers and thinkers to, does, to really break, it, yeah. break out of the bonds of everyday commonplace reality. Because what he was asking as well <coughs> was for many people, not um, particularly non-scientists, but also the scientists themselves, he was asking for a leap of imagination. Absolutely, yeah. Putting space and time together, saying that mass, like of a giant planet, would affect gravity. Uh, well, gravity was mm-hmm. more for special relativity. But, you know, he was asking all these different concepts that it, it would affect the world around you, that black holes were, were real. Yes. That there are gravitational worlds, uh, waves, that there's dark matter, that there's a dark... You know, all these things require um, a change, a complete out, change in outlook of the world, which is in itself poetic, I think. Many of them he didn't, he didn't accept himself. I don't think he initially accepted that black holes could be real. I mean, it was Schwarzschild, who's a, who is, I think, is a Russian mathematician, who 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 extended some of of Einstein's field equations. Mm, he did and that he at came the, up with, at the with, front with the, as well in yeah, World War One. Exactly, nineteen fifteen. So he yeah. came up with this with this idea that you know there would be an object, a massive star would die, and its gravitational force would be so big that light couldn't escape it. And Einstein thought that can't be true. Mm. So. Um, there are, even he, I think, was challenged by, um, which may be, the, may be the sign of a truly great um, insight, is that even if the, the inventor of it can't quite grasp it, and some of the things are still being proved now, of course. Can either of you explain what general relativity is? So I can barely say it. <laughs> I could have a very, a very, have qu- a a very quick yeah. kind of layman's bash, which yeah. is, uh, the way I think of it is that it's the geometric theory of gravity, um, so before Einstein's general theory came along, we thought of gravity in the Newtonian sense as a force. Now, Newton didn't really understand what caused gravity. He just kind of he knew how to measure it. And, you know, he invented calculus to try and understand it. And we can do many, many wonderful things with gravity, including most of the things you cover on this program, putting things into orbit, land, you know, um, slingshot trajectories around planets, et cetera, et cetera. That's all Newtonian gravity. Um, but Einstein... Um, he, his, his notion of gravity isn't as a force, it's as an effect of the, of the geometry of space-time. So that, um, you know, space-time, matter, like a planet or, or a glass of water or a galaxy, or a, um, tells space-time how to bend, how to, how to warp, 
and that space-time tells objects within it how to move. So um, we're actually, say if you can imagine, the, the classic metaphor is of the kind of stretched trampoline into which, which is space-time, into which you drop a gigantic object like the sun, which is gigantic mass. That changes the shape of space-time. And we come to it as a smaller force, and we kind of follow certain geodesic paths around. We think we're going in a straight line, but actually because space-time is curved and has what's called an irrational geometry, this is, this is non-Euclidean, his, his insights, um, we actually follow um, the geometry of space, but it feels to us like it's a force. It's not bad, actually, not bad. And I like the way that so many ideas, not just with Einstein, but with other sort of areas of physics, um, like the curving of space-time, mm-hmm. they show its potential for theoretically wormholes exactly, and shortcuts yeah. through folding and time over. Back in on exactly, yeah. and that does lend itself. Well, obviously, it has with science fiction. It mm-hmm. it does lend itself to the imagination mm-hmm. as well as and, trying to root yeah. them in mathematical yeah. and mm-hmm. scientific fact and all, and all I mean, things yeah. to be proved like mm-hmm. the gravitational mm-hmm. wave mission lisa and uh you know trying to prove that detect gravitational yeah. waves and the recent findings it's it's and it explains I, th- I think i think i'm right it explains wonderfully how light can bend even though light is made of photons which have zero mass we're used to gravity affecting the mass of things so how come light is affected by gravity it's because light thinks it's going in a straight line but actually it's going around these curvatures in space time so it's it's it, the attractiveness of its mass doesn't matter because it, it, it will it will continue on this path and the thing about light always being a constant speed so everything around it has to change Space and time, and space has to warp in order for, for light to, to be constant in all kind of frames of reference, which I think is, is extraordinary. Now, there are, we've already touched on that, that, you know, there are contributions from all sorts of people. Uh-huh. One of your favourites is by a late astronomer. Uh, Re- Rebecca Elson, yeah, who is, who is a, an astronomer and a poet who, who, who very, very sadly died at the age of 39 of cancer, but she, she, she produced a wonderful body of work. There's a book called A Responsibility to All. And when I was working with the um, Mullard Space Science Laboratory in 2014, I, I started off by introducing them to Rebecca Elson because she's an astronomer, they're astronomers and scientists, I'm a poet, she was a poet, so we all kind of overlapped. And she has a, a, a wonderful poem, short poem, called Explaining Relativity, which, which kind of does explain, you know, very beautifully. Explaining Relativity. Forget the clatter of ballistics, the monologue of falling stones, the sharp vectors and the stiff-numbered grids. It's so much more a thing of pliancy, persuasion, where space might cup itself around a planet like your palm around a stone, where you, yourself the planet caught up in some geodesic dream, might wake to feel it enfold your weight and know there is, in fact, no falling. Well, Simon, thank you very much for injecting some culture into, uh, into Space Boffins. Always my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> now, last year I travelled to uh, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Centre in Huntsville, Alabama, to report on the progress of the Space Launch System. The SLS is America's new giant rocket, capable of taking crew in the Orion capsule on missions beyond Earth orbit for the first time since the early 1970s. Well, I've been back... And this time, in one of the fabrication facilities at Marshall, surrounded by giant robotic welding machines, I met Andy Shaw, assistant manager overseeing the construction of just a small part of the SLS. 
What we're building here is one of the adapters that's required to mate the crew capsule, the Orion crew capsule, to the launch vehicle itself. And so our office is responsible for two adapters, one from the core stage, the main liquid propulsive element of the launch vehicle, up to an upper stage that will fire when it's in space, when it's reached orbit, to take the crew capsule on to its final destination. And then we also have an adapter from that upper stage that we're responsible for up to the Orion crew capsule hardware. Now, when you look at a diagram of the space launch system, this adapter you're building looks tiny. It's a small fraction of the total rocket. And yet we're standing beneath it and it's enormous. It looks relatively small, as you say, when when you're looking in terms of the overall rocket, which is 321 feet in height. What you're looking here, again, is the launch vehicle stage adapter, and it's approximately 28 feet in diameter and approximately 28 feet in height. So what's that in terms of it's about 10 meters 8.4 meters in the bottom, 8.4 meters roughly in height. And this is rising, rising above us here, and this is only half of it. This is only half of it, and that is because of the equipment we have here at Marshall Space Flight Center to manufacture this hardware, which when we're only building one of these, you don't want to go and spend a lot of money for new tooling equipment when you can use an existing capability. Such an enormous rocket just to get... It's you know, a fair four or six or eight, 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 eight astronauts into space. And so one would ask, why, why do we need to build a rocket? Why do you this need is such a big, a big is rocket? It, is it just because we're trying to show off? <laughs> no, that's not the case. Uh, two things, gravity and friction. Okay, if I was to try and jump off the ground, I could only get maybe a couple feet. And if you give me a 12-pound bowling ball, it would be even less. The crew capsule that we're trying to launch here weighs roughly 34,000 pounds. So if you're going to try and get that out to the destinations we're envisioning for missions, it takes a big rocket to get there. And then also um, the friction, uh, as we go up, we have to protect it with with thermal protection because it's going to get quite hot as, as it's traveling up through the atmosphere. Now, I've said that what we're standing in front of is just one half of this of this cone. The other part is over on the other side of this enormous assembly hall, um, which is, I mean, really just a, a big, high, square hangar. Uh, so let's have a look, and we can go okay. inside that one, I think. Alright, watch your head. Then. Okay, so you could probably hear that's a very different sound, and we're inside the, the top part of the cone. Again, the scale is, is overwhelming, given that this is only part of the cone, which is only part of the entire the rocket. Vehicle, right. What immediately strikes you, though, when you're in here, it's not the on the outside, it's very smooth, smooth aluminium panels. Inside is a, is a grid um, within the panels. Obviously, some of that has been uh, milled away Correct. of the aluminium. Correct. Yeah, these, again, are lightweight aluminum panels that um, are several inches in thickness. And so we send that out to a manufacturer or vendor in California, and they mill it on the outside to the dimensions we require on the outside. And then on the inside, they... They machine out an ortho grid, which lightens the structure, but then gives it the stiffness it requires. So it's really like a lattice. Exactly. To sustain those launch loads it's going to experience during launch. This is empty at the moment, but this will be partly filled with what? The top of the tank and then the engine coming down from the upper upper stage. Correct. So we would roughly be standing on top of the core stage, and then nested inside of here would be the... uh, cryogenic upper stage that that 
is activated once the launch vehicle has got the, the into space. So this particular one is going to be used for testing. Then, assuming that all goes well, you'll build an identical one, Correct. which will be used once. Once. And that's it. So you build this high-precision over months, mm-hmm. and then it ends up, what happens to it? Well, it will. It, it's expendable. So um, as after it's done its mission, it will fall back to Earth and, and, and splash down the ocean with the rest of the uh, expendable uh, portions of the launch vehicle. The only reusable portion of the overall rocket is the Orion crew capsule, which is the payload that we're building the rocket for. That, that seems extraordinary that you've got to put all that effort in, but suddenly it's going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. But it's not all wasted effort because all the learning we have from building this hardware, when we build the other adapters we'll have for the upgraded upper stage that we'll develop in the future, that learning will carry forward into building those pieces of hardware as well. So it's not wasted effort. Is there a, a sense of momentum about this project? I mean, there was, there was a huge interest in the launch of the first Orion capsule, that test flight, and that wasn't even on the, the SLS. I mean, you're now looking in you know, a couple of years' time of of flying the SLS. Yeah, just over two years' that's time. That's not long, is it? Is, no, no, it's not. <laughs> and, and, and that's starting to get our attention as well, uh, for sure. Um, but, yes, I, I would agree with you. I, I really do think we have a sense of momentum. We uh, successfully passed our critical design review last year that said our design is locked and we've got the, the go-ahead to proceed with production of Flight Harbor, which is essentially what we're doing here today. And, and in fact, all aspects of the launch vehicle have some form of their... Uh, flight hardware in production. So, yeah, we have we have turned the corner and we are pressing for launch. Andy Shaw helping to oversee construction of the space launch system, the SLS. I, I mean, it's not the greatest name, but it's a genuinely exciting project, building a rocket that'll take people beyond Earth orbit to the moon or to Mars. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. And um, I love the fact that whenever there's a new stage, there's a... You know, a very, very loyal Twitter following and Facebook following <laughs> for whatever's going mm. on with this. That well, you we want, always we get want little to see it reports yeah. and, and yeah. videos of latest tests and stuff like that. So, if you want to keep informed, you d- you don't have to look far actually than social media. They're great for that. What are your thoughts on this, uh, do you, Simon? Do you think that actually this is? We, we are turning a corner. We are go for launch. We are go for this the moon, the Mar- and onto Mars. I think we're in a, an era of of being quite strategic um, in terms of how much money we expend and the long term goal. So there there are lots of small but fascinating projects going on, which we're learning a lot about the universe for and building up I think, the, the, those next steps towards you know living off off planet, I guess or to terraforming the moon and all those things which are kind of inevitably going to be there. Um, but there seems to be there are less big, massive, grandstanding media events. Um, there's lots of little ones. And I think social media has helped that a lot. You know, you were talking about Twitter presences. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Comets and Rosetta, they, they're celebrities on, on Twitter now. You know, they tweet to it. The Sun has a, has a Twitter account. When I was obsessed with The Sun, I used to follow that. It was, I think it's very important to, to, to work towards 
I sound like I don't love this planet. I do, but you know, it's it has a limited life. Yeah, even I, even if we treat it well forever, it has a limited yeah, because ul- of the sun. You know, and it's, ultimately, if yeah. humans are to survive into the far future, yeah. we need to get off the planet. And what if we to destroy were, another one? But what if we were the only intelligent life in the universe for some quirk? You know, quirk well, of it that, could then could easily what a responsibility we have to try and take that off this yeah. this small system with a with a, 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 a you know um, a star that's going to live for ten billion years. What then? You know, wouldn't it be awful if you're talking about materials crashing into the sea? Wouldn't it be awful if all this just disappeared? My colleague here probably disagrees about us being the only intelligent uh, <laughs> beings I in I've the gone universe. Very quiet, yeah. yes. I'm not saying we are, but we don't have any other evidence. Absolutely. Yet. I also think that the the thought for me of, uh, and I know there have been lots of films that have dealt with this in the past. Who would you send out as your representative of the human race? Who would you use and select and Mm. how you'd make those selections? Would you, as often happens with anything like this, be it for in the past for nuclear attacks, when you look at the sort of people that are being saved, often they're members of local Mm. councils and governments, and you think, is this really the best the human beings can be? But then you also know that that decision is fraught with the most um, terrible responsibility, but also potential for misuse as Mm. well. And that's why it's opened itself up to fantastic fiction in the past, because it could all go so horribly wrong. Imagine if... Oh, I, I, I don't want to be too political about this in terms of, but I'm just thinking, you know. No, I won't say any more because I'll get into trouble. But yeah. But the thing is, you, you can't predict how the people you would so well chosen would re- react in, in alien situations anyway. I, so, But I wouldn't go the Hugo Drax way in Moonraker, where he basically wants to turn the future into, into a long kind of um, shampoo advert, doesn't he, with lots of blonde so I was, yes, <laughs> I was actually, that's probably the worst of the Roger Moore films. Although he didn't look too, too ancient then, did he? He looked okay. Yeah, I think maybe. It probably is, you're right. Closely well, followed by a View to a Kill, perhaps. That actually came out before they'd launched the first space shuttle. Did it? Interesting yes. James Bond fact. Uh, Not that interesting, but... Fiction moving ahead of, of uh, science and engineering. Yeah. I was just going to mention the Douglas Adams um, idea where the planet sends its useless third of the population <laughs> out, on a, out on a starship. Although I rather suspect the journalists might be among <laughs> that crew. Yeah, that's, oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's well, either that gives gonna, me hope of getting off the planet if they're sending the It's either going to be the Wrath of Khan situation where you send out your genetically modified superhuman beings or, yes, or... Journalists you get rid of the useless ones. And local local government planners. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much to our guest, Simon Barraclough. I Am Because You Are, published by Freight Books and edited by Pippa Goldschmidt and Tanya Hirschman, is available now. And uh, I can honestly say it's really great. My only criticism was that your contribution, Simon, wasn't long enough. I saw it as a a novel. I saw it as a screenplay. Uh I've, I've already cast it. Keanu Reeves. Who's directing it? Um, oh, Ridley Scott. <laughs> okay. JJ Abrams? Oh, JJ, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't say no yeah. to either of them. 
Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and with a grant from the Royal Astronomical Society. We're looking for more sponsors, so if your company or organisation wants to help, or you know of some who do, do let us know. 30,000 discerning listeners can't be wrong. Uh, do look out for me at Space Fest. I would love to meet you. You can buy me a drink if you like, or several. This month, though, marks the 55th anniversary on the 5th of May 1961 of America's first manned spaceflight. Although Alan Shepard didn't make it into orbit, his 15-minute parabolic flight in Mercury 3 was definitely quite a ride. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition, liftoff, liftoff at 34 minutes after the hour. All right, uh, liftoff and the clock is started. This is Freedom 7. The fuel is go 1.2 G. Oxygen is go. Cabin pressure is holding at 5.5. Okay, it's a lot smoother now, a lot smoother. Freedom 7 with astronaut Alan B. Shepard reports turnaround started. He's going to hand control movements now. Trajectory looks A-OK. Switching to manual yaw. Taking over manual control of the roll attitude. What a beautiful view. Cloud cover over Florida, three to four tenths near the eastern coast. I can see Okeechobee, identify Andros Island, identify the reef. The mission is now six minutes and 40 seconds old. The retro rocket packet has been jettisoned. The Mercury spacecraft is beginning to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. We have a registration in the control center indicating five hundredths of a G in the beginning of penetration. Uh, freedom 7, Freedom 7, this is card file 2, 3, over. Uh, this is 7. Rate of descent is reading about 35 feet per second. The main chute is good. The landing bag has deployed. I'm getting ready for impact. Oh, Roger. We do see the, the bright parachute up above. Just a few minutes ago, almost directly above us, we saw the vapor trail from the space capsule shortly after he had re-entered the atmosphere. It is now becoming harder and harder to see the uh, parachute. It just hit the water a moment ago. A cheer went up from the ship company watching here. The parachute is now flattened against the water. And from this point, we are unable to tell how the capsule is riding in the water. The astronaut is out of the capsule. The helicopter has lowered a swing to pick him up. This is Robert Lodge aboard the carrier Lake Champlain. 